Um, I am very delighted to be with you, and you know why from hearing Kay. Um, and one of the things that I think is important for us to know about friendships is that um, gospel-centered friendships pick up wherever you left off. And um, I often think and pray and, and consider this idea, especially because my, my only sister is already in heaven, that I'm pretty sure God has some rocking chairs for us uh, because we never have enough time to really um, explore and deeply um, um, look at and experience uh, gospel-centered friendships. Um, so it's sweet to have a reunion with Kay and with Margaret. We've known each other a long time, too. Margaret has uh, been in women's ministry circles for a very long time, so I'm very grateful for that. <clears throat> I have to tell you a couple of things anecdotally, and one of those is that one of my closest friends, we, there were four of us who started as a work group in women's ministry about 20 years ago, and we really worked. We really had decisions to make, projects to do, and work to do whenever we met a couple of times a year, and that evolved to the point where we call ourselves the odd quad, and there is only one of us who's still employed working now. The rest of us are retired or in other roles in our lives. And yet we still get together a couple of times a year. So the, the, my equivalency, the one woman who is most like me and will get in my face the fastest is the one I called and um, talked to her about what I'm going to uh, present tonight and how we're going to interact. And she said, Barbara, you cannot do that to those women. You cannot do that. She said, this is not your life work that you're trying to present. And I said, oh, you mean I've got to cut about half of it out? And she said, yeah, you've got to cut about half of it out. And uh, she said, that's like a fire hydrant on steroids that you're talking about. Um, yeah, I said, you don't think they're going to listen as fast as you do? And she said, no, they're not going to listen as fast as you do. Then I sent her the title, and she called me again. Do you know, do you even know what Snapchat is? Do you know how it got started, she said? And I said, because she's constantly talking to me as though I'm a Luddite because I'm not on Facebook. We have these great discussions about she's on Facebook, I'm not on Facebook. I have my reasons and my rationales for not being on Facebook. And she has her reasons and rationales for being on it. And she thinks she's right, and I think, for me, I'm right. Um, and so she said, do you know how Snapchat got started? I said, yes, I do. I was so excited because I had done my homework. <laughs> and it wasn't just a cutesy title because I knew that it started with teenage girls sexting. She said, you already knew that and you still used it? And I said, yeah, do you know what's happening with it now? And she said, well, not really. I said, gotcha, gotcha, because it is the new way of communicating among generations of our young women of sending videos and texts and, and photos that are the equivalency of Twitter in words. They're sending them in visuals. And that's not all sexting. It's also just communicating and talking with one another. And Snapchat has developed a whole new part of Snapchat that tells your story. Isn't that interesting? That they're discovering your story and helping you to use Snapchat 
to tell your story. So it was a very deliberate, intentional thing, Joanne. She said, okay, I just want to make sure you thought about it. <laughs> and that. So here we are, gospel-centered friendships in a Snapchat world, changing our conversations. And what I want to talk with you about before we have a break, and I give you an assignment during break because I'm going to make you work. It's just part of who I am as a speaker facilitator. Uh, Before we do that, what I want us to think about is gospel-centered womanhood. And what do we bring in our womanhood to friendships? What does gospel-centered womanhood mean? Who are we as women? And who are we as women who are followers of Christ? Is there a mold or a paradigm or a pattern for what it means to be a woman in Christ? Um, I think it is still, and it has been ever since I became a Christian and became involved in women's ministry in the PCA, it's been a fairly heated discussion. What is womanhood? And there are new ways of talking about it at this point, and yet it's the same struggle and discussion in many ways that it was 30 years ago or 40 years ago. What does it mean to be a gospel-centered woman, or what is gospel-centered womanhood? How are we informing and training our young girls even for who they are in Christ and who, what their need of Christ is? And how does that rub up against the Snapchat world, the um, Facebook world, the Twitter world, of what are the pressures on every woman in this room in terms of our identity in Christ and our identity as we move forward in growing in Christ. What does that look like? So the first place I want to start is what was one of the most impactful concepts to me as a young Christian who was already an adult woman with a social work career, uh, with a degree in secular humanism, with a whole history of... um, of rebelling against the status quo of my mother's generation. Of, I'm, a 60s, I'm a 60s teenager. And so the, all of that, some of you are nodding. You know what that means in terms of what, what were our options. One of my Bibles in that season was Marlo Thomas's Free to Be Me. What is that saying? What's that about? Free to be me. What does that mean? Free to be whoever I choose to be. The options were limitless. I didn't have to be a nurse or an educator. When I went to college, which was the only two choices my mom had, was, you know, go to college, you'd be a teacher or you'd be a nurse. And if you really want to be married, then you go to Louisiana Tech, where I went, because that's where all the male engineering students are. But there were only a couple of female engineering students, and they were weird. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's that context that I come to the gospel And one of the first concepts, I will never forget, Susan Hunt sent me the the first copies of her, before her book was published by design, she sent me those copies. And, I mean, we argued for the next six months. I said, this is the most radical idea I can ever even imagine thinking of. It has got to be wrong. I am going to prove it wrong. It wasn't wrong, friends. It wasn't wrong. And what God did was begin to show me this design that he had 
stamped in my heart and who he made to me to be in his image. And he began the process of giving me joy. Joy in that design of who I am. So if you have your Bibles, if you don't, I'm going to read it to you. But we're going to look at Genesis 2.18. A very familiar verse. We're going to start with that um, verse. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That's the ESV. Well, you can imagine, I was married, but I, you can imagine when I heard that word helper, it was, it was just fiery, fire in my eyes. What do you mean I'm a helper? What does that mean? And um, just struggling with that and thinking through that. And yet God just continued to work in my heart. And the most amazing thing, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in the second session, but he gave me women who were patient with me, um, Susan Hunt being one of them, and willing to continue to love me and even to learn from me that they were not writing to women who were born on the pew in these concepts, that there had to be a way to expand those concepts for women who hadn't grown up breathing covenantal air, that there had to be a way to speak into the lives of those of us who were breathing feminist air. And that's what most of your daughters are breathing. That's what they're breathing. Even in some, in some Christian schools, that's what they're breathing. So that is the power of it to understand that God made us in his image and he made me a helper an ally in Genesis 2:23 then the man said this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man Adam recognized the image of God in the creation of the woman. He, he affirms that by his poem or his statement. When, and he was praising God for that. He wasn't just giving her a compliment. She wasn't Eve yet. He wasn't giving the woman a compliment. He was praising God because I recognize her. She's a part of me. She's a part of being made in your image. If you go back to Ephesians 2.25 and then it says... Um, not, not Ephesians 2.25, uh, Genesis. Um, if you go back to the creation story, remember where it says in verse 26 of chapter 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Female was not an afterthought. He already said in his creation, when he created Adam, he was creating a female. That is such amazing truth. Such an amazing truth. Now, I'm going to tell you that among Christian circles, there are a lot of women who think the helper design and submission were part of the curse. 
They don't know it didn't happen after Genesis 3. They believe that it happened after Genesis 3. And that's not the truth. The truth is we were created to be helpers. We were created to be allies. We were created to be, and that does not matter what your station, what your role, what your life experience, that is a part of who we are in the image of God. That God, God inexorably carved out this part of his image and put it in us as women, gave it to our hearts and to our lives. And the response in my life for now this 32 years has been increasing joy about the image of God that he stamped into me and carved uniquely into us as women. And the joy of interacting with women and seeing that design be recovered and restored as God works in our lives. So what happened? And the image of God was ruined by sin. And the result was shame and despair and anger and frustration and rebellion. Rebellion against God who created us this way. Arguing with God as many times we're told in scripture. Why did you make me this way? Um, Of grasping for self-glory, for self-protection, for self-justification. And most of all, betraying in that rebellion our intimacy with God the Father and our intimacy with one another. It, it distorted for us. I think we need to understand that it distorted our womanhood. It's, it distorted, sin distorts every part of our womanhood, not just our sexuality. It distorts our identity. It distorts, sin distorts our joy. Sin distorts the fruit the fruit of our lives. Sin distorts all of our relationships of, uh, as women. Men too, but we're talking about womanhood tonight. And so that, that is a, a depth of distortion that we miss sometimes. It wasn't just a little bit got marred. It was the whole design got just destroyed by sin in our hearts and in our lives. You can't interact with an unbelieving woman and find much vestige of that design, if any. Now, there might be masquerades of it, but that design was totally distorted so that we can't be surprised that the world doesn't get it, that the world doesn't get submission, that the world doesn't get our joy in being helpers and being allies in not just who we, what we do, and that's part of the helper design being relegated to what we do. It's not about what we do. I love African-American language because they don't have two words that separate who we be and what we do. That's the African language in the original is that who we be is that design. And sin has distorted who we be, not just what we do. Then we look at Genesis 3.9. <clears throat> But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, the man did, and I was afraid. So that fear came as a part of the sin because I was naked and I hid myself. 
What we want to see there is that God called. He pursued. He knew that Adam and the woman were hiding. He knew that they had been shamed, that they felt shame because of their nakedness for the very first time, that that intimacy with him was lost, and he pursued them. He pursued them in the same way that we pursue people who are, we, we reflect his image when we pursue with the gospel, the way that God pursued the man at that point. And then Genesis 3.15, I still dance for joy because I never saw Jesus in the Old Testament until our pastor preached on Genesis 3.15. The first time I was in a Reformed church and I went, I didn't know Jesus was in Genesis. And that whole verse was unpacked for a sermon. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That his is our Lord Jesus Christ. There he is. God not only called them, but he promised them a redeemer. He promised them life. He promised them a redeemer from that very moment of that fall. We don't know how much time expired, but there's still that moment in that fall. He didn't, he he went after his beloved at that point. And then in Genesis 3.16, we see to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, this is where you get to talk. Tell me where the hope and joy is in that verse. Where's the hope? Where's the redemption in that verse? Childbearing. You're going to have a child. You're going to have a child. You're going to give life, he's saying to her. You are going to be the mother of a child. That is amazing that here in this time, God is saying, yeah, there's going to be pain. And Probably if there had been no sin, there wouldn't have been pain. Wouldn't have that, wouldn't that have been nice? But, but at, this, at the same time, he's saying, you're going to bear a child. You're, I'm going to fulfill that. I'm going to put that longing in your heart, and I'm going to fulfill that longing. I'm going to give you a child. You're going to bear a child. <clears throat> and then we look at 320, where Adam... In his way of being entitled, he's entitled to this. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. He changed her name. He had called her woman before then. But Adam, because he was created first and was entitled to name everything that was in creation, he also named his, the woman and called her Eve the mother of all the living. Again, we see that redemption there and that glorious reversal. I love that way of thinking about it, that glorious reversal of this woman who had led out in the sin in many ways. And God is saying, you will bear life and you will be the mother of all the living. I mean, sometimes we think of ourselves as being daughters of Eve in a pejorative way, in a kind of negative way, like that's the sin part, my flesh struggle. That's really not right. Scripturally, 
We are her daughters because she's the mother of all the living. We are her daughters because that's her redeemed name. Eve is her redeemed name. Eve is not her, her sin name. It's her redeemed name. Um, <clears throat> so there's that joy again. And I want you to look at your um, handout at this um, diagram because I'm, indebt- I'm indebted to my, uh, one of my, our pastors, uh, Todd Lowry, and he allowed me to use this. And the reason I want you to look at this redemptive diagram is because I think part of our misunderstanding of our womanhood has to do that we misunderstand sanctification. We misunderstand what it is to grow in Christ. And we've relegated it to a checklist of moral behaviors. And that is not at all what the gospel looks like. We, know, we think we know a Christian woman by what she does and what she says and what she does with her spare time and free time and how she parents her children. And that's not how sanctification looks. So if you look at this diagram, the upward arrow A growing awareness of redemption, what is already true in Christ. In other words, that part of um, the redemption diagram is saying the more we know Jesus, the more we know of his righteousness, of his purity, of of the way he lived his life for us. And that is a part of our growing in Christ. And where where is Christ revealed in all of his glory? The cross. And where do we learn about that? How has God given us to learn that, to know that? Just the Bible. His word is where we learn of him. The word is the story of redemption. And so if we go to the word in this way of Christian growth and growing in Christ, it's to look for Jesus, to hear from Jesus, to, to be reminded of what Jesus did and what he's doing. And what he will do to be reminded of Jesus. In, and, and sometimes I, I ask myself and I ask women with whom I'm ministering, what Jesus are we following? Who is Jesus? What, what do we say? I mean, Jesus asked his disciples on a couple of occasions, who do people say I am and who do you say I am? It's a kind of a regular question that we should be asking ourselves, I think. Because does my life really reflect what I already know about him? Or is my life reflecting that I'm following a Jesus that's made up in my own idol factory heart? Or am I following the Jesus who's revealed in Scripture? So that upward thing is not... I mean, if I were going to write a book about this, it would be what my mothers fail to tell me. Mothers fail to tell me. Because the other arrow didn't get talked about a lot in my young Christian walk. And that is a growing awareness by the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit of sinfulness. And what I have in my remarks here is that downward era is repentance. The upward era is faith in the, in the reality of who Jesus is. And the downward era is repentance and a growing awareness of my sin. Here's the bad news, younger women. It's going to get worse you hadn't seen nothing about your sin yet compared to what you're going to see as God continues to shape you and restore you 
to that design, to that original reflecting image of God. And what happens when that one arrow is going up and this other arrow is going down? Look at what's in between. What happens to the cross? It gets bigger and sweeter and more beautiful. And also Christ's righteous life gets beautiful and sweeter and more real. And we're going to talk about that in some real practical ways this evening because repentance without faith will kill you. It will. You will will be completely prostrate undone if you continue to dwell on the indwelling sin in your own heart and you do not turn to that upward arrow of seeing who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, what he's promised what he will do and what he's doing right now in this in-between time because the cross growing bigger is what keeps us alive. That's the growth. That's the life. That's the life-giving is the cross growing bigger as we understand what Jesus has done and how he is doing it. Um, The spirit, the father initiates, the father called, the spirit applies the word. I don't want you to think that you're going to find Jesus reading blogs. Now, you might, but it's going to be because that blog is giving you God's word in some way. Because Jesus, God chose to reveal Jesus to us through his word. Um, One of my friends who's in Christian education and has served a church faithfully for over 30 years and is, in, is uh, involved in, in help and does women's ministry there, directs women's ministry also, um, said she went out to lunch with some um, of her leaders recently, and one of her leaders asked her, why do we not do a certain person's, or a te- these several, she named several, because if I just said it was one, you would know who that is. But, um, I mean, and there were several. Uh, uh, that this, this leader wanted to know, why aren't we doing those, those Bible studies? And she said, well, in her practical way, Donna said, you know, it concerns me when people are hearing directly from God. It concerns me when their anecdotes say, God told me to. Because you've got to go to the Word and say, did that measure up to the way God works? Because God has revealed himself and the Holy Spirit is the one who turns our eyes to Jesus through this word, to his finished work. And to um, the Spirit is the one who carries us along. Um, he carries us along to put off our sin and to put on obedience and righteousness. It's the Spirit's work to carry us along. That's what that word means of being filled It partly means, it means three wonderful things, but partly it means being carried along by the Spirit. You may think you're here tonight because you had your pastor's wife play a trump card. No, you're not. The Spirit carried you here. I mean, I didn't carry you here kicking and screaming, but he carried you here. He got you here uh, because he wants you to be here. Um, And then the Spirit also permeates our lives. He fills us to permeate our lives. What does he permeate our lives with? What does the Spirit permeate our lives with in this Christian growth model? The fruit. He permeates our life with the fruit. 
The fruit is the sweetness of odor and the aroma of our lives because the spirit permeates us. It's like those stories you've heard about going to a village in France where they make perfume, where everything smells like perfume. My friend grew up near Hershey, Pennsylvania, and she talks about going to the Hershey factory. And this, I mean, the whole town smells like chocolate. And that's the thing with the spirit. He permeates us so that it's true what Jesus says, obviously. And Jesus said it to us. He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. To bear fruit. And then the spirit dominates us. That is huge to me because I grew up um, in a tradition. A relig- I mean, my family was in church. My, my parents were believers after I was about nine years old. And we were in church, but I grew up thinking I have to do something over and over and over again. I mean, finally, our pastors just got to where they would just kind of turn me around at the back of, at the front of the aisle and send me back to my seat because I was rededicating my life once again. And it, it, it was because I didn't understand that the Spirit dominates you, that he, whom he's called, he's going to keep and he's going to finish. Um, and so it's such a comfort to know that, again, the Spirit's not leaving us. He's going to give us everything we need for life and godliness. He's going to dominate our lives. And we can quench him. We can, um, we can be stubborn and um, deal with discipline because of that. But he's not going to give up. The picture that God first gave me of that when we were brand new Christians was like a child who's going to run across an interstate that the Holy Spirit is going to tackle me. And even he might bring me home, but he's not going to let me leave. He's not going to let me leave him. He's not going to let us rebel and wrest ourselves away from him. What a treasure in our Christian growth. No matter how bad our mistakes, the implications of that, I think, in our model and understanding of our spiritual growth growth, and we will look at that in our gospel-centered relationships. The way God does it is through his word, through other means of grace, His worship, the worship. I'm talking about the worship in your church. I'm not talking about watching TV worship. I'm talking about the means of grace in the church. Um, the, as one of our friends said, the church is plan A. God didn't give us a plan B um, for that means of grace. Uh, the sacraments um, the, and prayer are the means of grace that God has given us for that Christian growth. It's not mysterious. We don't have to go out and find it on our own. He said, this is the way I grow you, is the means of grace. And I think <clears throat> there's also the gospel-centeredness of our relationships that God uses to grow us, even though that's not as clear although it is pretty clear how much we're told to love one another, isn't it? And how we're told to interact with one another. We'll talk more about that later. And then there's the disciplines and the the discipleship of dailiness, of walking by the Spirit, of walking, as Paul says, by the Spirit and not by the flesh, of the clearly, of the disciplines and uh, discipleship. And that's where I think our relationships again come in because I can't do that alone. I need you. I need you. And God has created us for one another in encouraging our discipleship 
and that dailiness of walking in the Spirit and the disciplines of that. That's why our conversations are so important because where else are you going to be urged on and exhorted and held accountable and loved enough for people to, to push you in those discipleship disciplines? Um, and uh, walking together in the pursuit of growth in Christ. I heard Packer say one time, I did hear him in person a couple of times, which is a little torturous, but uh, <clears throat> you just have to wait for the pearls because it's coming. And um, he, um, he said, though, that our churches are filled, this is not politically correct, with spiritual pygmies. Because we, I think it's because we've misunderstood Christian growth. We've relegated again Christian growth to behaviors, to behaviors. Like we can control it. We can know. We can dress up in our Sunday meeting to Sunday go to meeting clothes, and we can put on our own self righteousness, which is the biggest sin struggle I have, of substituting my righteousness for the righteousness of Christ. And we think that's Christian growth. It's not. It's downhill. It's a repentance. It's seeing the cross bigger and bigger. It's knowing more and more and more about the righteousness of Christ. And then the whole consummation of gospel womanhood, gospel-centered womanhood, is living happily ever after. Living happily ever after. And why do you think those movies are still great? Why is Frozen the most, I mean, because it's still in our hearts that we want to live happily ever after. Well, guess what? We are. We promise that. And our zeal, informed by knowledge of Christ, is where our hope is anchored. It's anchored in our our zeal with, uh, with knowledge of Christ and the doctrine of God our Savior is where our hope is anchored. It's our real hope. Our assistant pastor, and I'm sure that this might be his phrase, I don't know, I shouldn't discredit him that. He talks about unrealized eschatology and uh, that we have this idea that we want the end before the end's here. Um, And then our Sunday school teacher was teaching on um, the chapter in Matthew, I think Matthew 11, uh, about John the Baptist. And he was making the point, he was talking to us about eschatology and defining that word. And he said that eschaton can mean two different things. It can mean the end as in terminus, like the end, it's over, it's done. Or it can mean the end as in purpose. Now, Presbyterian women, what is the chief of man? To glorify God and join him. Have you ever thought about that as eschatology? That's eschatology. That's the end. That's our purpose. That's our real hope. That forever we will enjoy God. We will glorify him perfectly in our restored, redeemed bodies of women. We won't be different than women. We will be fully restored helpers imaging God to one another. And that is our hope. That's where it's anchored, is in that reality. I want you to just 
suspend your um, critical spirits for the next 15 minutes. I know we all got them. And I want you to give something a try. I'm not going to tell you to trust me because I'm not trustworthy. But I'm pretty sure that Jesus is. I know he is. And I want you to have an experience that I think will be helpful to you and maybe give us some new insights. And we're going to share those insights after this activity. It's during break and on your handouts, I've given you a list of questions. I want you to have a conversation with someone that you don't know very well. I want you to introduce yourself to her and want you to pick one of these questions. I'll give you a minute to read them. And then when we break, even if it's in the restroom, um, I want you to weave one of these concepts or questions into your conversation. So there should be two of you at least. Maybe you can have a threesome conversation who have picked different things that you're going to weave into the conversation. I want you to do it naturally and supernaturally. Not, let's have an interview and I'm going to ask you this question and I can say I did what Barbara said. I want it to be conversational. So are you willing? Are you willing to do an experiment? And let's just see how God might work in that time together. We, uh, 15 minutes? Yeah. Yeah, probably 15 minutes, okay? Break. <laughs> Break. <laughs>